21, we got down to verse 10. It says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. If you notice verse 9, it says, One of the seven angels which had the seven vials talked with me, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. The same angel who had shown Babylon earlier, the prostitute, to John, also shows him the New Jerusalem as the bride, the Lamb's wife. The city New Jerusalem characterizes and symbolizes uh, qualities of its inhabitants. And uh, this city is called the bride, the Lamb's wife, because the inhabitants are exactly that. They are the glorified church. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul speaks of the church as the bride of Christ. And this city descends out of heaven from God, and so depicts the heavenly and divine origin of the church. In Ephesians chapter 2, let me read this for you. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, it says this, And hath raised us up together, and hath made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, believers now, in this life, as we live now, we're as much as in our spiritual state, seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say He will raise us up. He, He has raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places, In Christ Jesus. And so the church is seen of uh, and is depicted by this city coming down out of heaven from God. It depicts the heavenly and divine origin of the church. And this city has the glory of God. Her light was likened to a stone most precious. This indicates that the church possesses God's glory. Ephesians 3 verse 21. I want you to notice this verse. It says, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So, the glory of God is depicted. This uh, church... On earth, as it will be glorified in heaven in the presence of God. And the glory of the church is a light for the world. In the middle of the city, God is the light and the Lamb is the lamp. That's 21 verse 23. If you notice verse 23, the city had no need of the sun. You have Revelation 21 verse 23. The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the city itself is a receptacle for magnifying the light of God. And we're going to find a lot of things about the stones and the gates and the pearls and various things that we will... uh, run across as we study the rest of the chapter. Verse 11 says, Having the glory of God, and her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, 
clear as crystal. This is not just the ordinary jasper stone, stone, but this is possibly a diamond or an opal. And there are various takes on uh, this stone and to identify it. But we find it's clear as crystal. And jasper represents a watery, crystalline brightness. And its glory is as that of the Creator whose appearance is described as being like a jasper stone. Verse 12 tells us and begins to describe this new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven as we read in verse 10. Verse 12 begins to describe the construction of it. We'll find a lot of things here mentioned that are typical. We'll see the, we'll see Israel of old, the twelve tribes of old represented and brought into focus with the twelve apostles of the Lamb so that you have the Old and New Testament saints all grouped together. And in that glorified city, all the redeemed of all ages will be there. We made a distinction in the 20th chapter where we're talking about the church distinct from Israel that would be saved out of the tribulation. But now we're going to see in the final state and eternal state of things, all the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints and all the redeemed of all time glorified together and united together. And we'll see the 12 tribes spoken of here of Israel. We'll see the 12 apostles of the Lamb uh, that are the foundation of the New Testament church. So let's look at verse... uh, 12, this city had a great wall, had a wall great and high, and had 12 gates. You know, even the old old Jerusalem had 12 gates. And if you study in the Old Testament, in Nehemiah's day, we're brought around about 10 gates, and there's two more that are mentioned, but there are 12 gates, and we find that you go around the city, You have the sheep gate and fish gate and valley gate and all the gates representative of certain spiritual aspects of of that holy city. And here it says, and had a wall great and high and had twelve gates and at the gates twelve angels. There are twelve angels to guard and make uh, the city secure. It's secure and protected and and it's uh, very... Uh, wonderful to have the assurance that you'll always be taken care of in the presence of God. And the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On these gates now, you have the Old Testament saints. You have the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Then it starts telling you about these gates. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. So you have the wall denotes the, the security of the city. It keeps the ungodly from entering because there will no, be no entrance into that city of anything that is ungodly. And it also stresses the eternal security of the city's inhabitants having these twelve gates with twelve angels that guard the twelve gates. And this is an additional symbol of perfect security. And we'll read later on, the gates will never be closed. And this will imply, that's in 21 verse 25, the gates, look at, glance down to verse 25, the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. So you'll find that the gates not being closed 
imply perfect liberty and peace. Freedom and peace at the same time. The names of these twelve tribes are inscribed on the gates. And this implies none but spiritual Israel. Spiritual Israel. God's elect shall enter the heavenly city. And we're going to read now in verse uh, 14. It says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So you have twelve foundations. And you have the twelve apostles of the Lamb. You know, we're told in Ephesians 2.20. You might glance back at that reference. Ephesians 2 verse 20. is speaking to the church of Ephesus. And every church is built upon this solid foundation. But it says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. The foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets. You have the Old Testament prophets that that are the foundation of the New Testament. And you have the New Testament apostles. And then you have the fact that Jesus Christ Himself is the chief cornerstone. Now when you read Revelation 22 verse 14 it says, The wall of the city had twelve foundations and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Showing us the secure foundation. Christ Himself is the true foundation. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us, Other foundation can no one man lay. I believe it's verse 11. You might check it out. Uh, other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And it says, If any man build upon this foundation, so we as Christians... We build upon a true foundation, that is Jesus Christ. But here we're told that He is the chief cornerstone and that the apostles are the, uh, in a sense, the foundations. The twelve apostles are foundations only in regard to their apostolic testimony concerning Christ. And that's what we see in these uh, different ones that are described here. You know, there are twelve gates, there are twelve angels, there are twelve tribes, there are twelve foundations, there are twelve apostles. Twelve is a number of government, governmental number of perfection. We'll find twelve mentioned many times in uh, this passage of Scripture. Now, verse 15 says, And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. <coughs> A golden reed to measure. In chapter 11, verse 2, lack of measuring, there was a lack of measuring the outer courts of the temple. It says those outer courts measure not. And this implied it being given over to the secular and the heathen desecration. Look at 11, verse 2, and you'll see when it was spoken of here. 11 verse 2 says, But the court, let's read verse 1 and 2. And there was given me a reed like unto rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. But now verse 2 says, But the court which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So in that passage of Scripture, 
the lack of measuring these outer courts of the temple implied it's being given over to the heathen desecration to the Gentiles. And according to other interpretations, it simply means that these areas are not protected. These, the areas that are not measured and distinguished are not protected. And so right here, on the contrary, the city being measured implies the entire consecration of every part of the city. And all the things being brought to the most exact standard of God's holy requirements. And it also refers to God's protection from all evil. Even the most minute parts of the holy city will be protected. In verse 16, you have the description of the city in a sense that it is described as a cube here. And the city lies four square. The length of it, you have Revelation 22 verse 16, always holds your place where we're progressing on down. The city lies four square. The length, length is as the large as the breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. Like a cube. Now some have said that it's a pyramid and not a cube. Well, there's two things here that would be involved in that. First of all, the city lies four square. Whether the four square means the base of it, square in that way, or four square as a cube. And you would get more squares in a cube than uh, many more than four in a sense. Because if you measure a cube, you've got a square at the bottom and a square at the top and a square on four sides. That would be uh, four. That would be six times it would be squared, wouldn't it? But I believe that it probably does follow the form of a cube. But on the other hand, there's some that believe that it's a pyramid which would equal in height to the width and the breadth. So it would still meet the standards except for the thought of life four square. It all depends on how you interpret that. You see, a city could be as wide this way and square this way, length and breadth, and still be as high if you had a pyramid going up and it equal that same height. But if you interpret the four square to mean a cube, well, then it would not meet the conditions. Now then, actually, the 12,000 furlongs here is 1,500 miles square. You know how big that is? That's quite big. Quite large. The measurements given approximately 1,500 miles square, an area occupying one half of the United States. A city occupying one half of the United States. Of the area of the United States. That's quite a large city, isn't it? Coming down from God out of heaven. I don't know that we're to take everything that we see here in a literal sense. Maybe it's a symbolical meaning of a lot of things. I don't know. But I know one thing that God is saying that when He comes and the bride is with Him, that there will be ample room for all and He'll protect all and there will be walls and there will be gates and there will be these things that imply entrance and protection, security, and all of it will come out as the Lord has it figured. And I'm not sure that we understand all of it, really. Uh, 
we find the height of the wall. First of all, let me say that 1,500 miles square does form a perfect cube. If you have a cube, 1,500 miles each direction. But then also, we know that in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle itself was a cube. It was 15 feet in each direction. It formed a perfect cube. That is the Holy of Holies. And then we find the temple itself was 30 feet by 30 feet. Also a perfect cube. Then we read of the uh, wall of the city. In verse 17. And he measured the wall thereof and 140 and 4 cubits. Now 144 cubits is 216 feet high. According to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. Man's measure, or he was measuring so that man would understand these measurements. And the building of the wall. Now, here we find how the wall of the city was built. The building of the wall of it was of jasper. And the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. The purest gold that you could find. Jasper, pure gold, like unto glass. This gold is transparent, so transparent that as no earthly gold could possibly be. Transparent as glass. And when we're reading verse 19, we're going to find that it begins to describe the foundations of the wall and their adornment. It's very instructional to observe that the Foundation stones here are mentioned and that the most valuable possessions on earth are used in the Old Testament high priest's garments. And I'll refer back to that in a moment. You'll find in Exodus chapter 28 where the, the stones are seen upon the shoulders of the priest and also upon the breastplate of the priest's garments under the old uh, economy. And God had given those for a special reason. Let's read them here and then we'll go back to the Old Testament and show you those briefly. If you look at verse uh, <clears throat> 19 through 20, 19 through 20 actually, <clears throat> you'll have 12 stones mentioned. <clears throat> Let's read them. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, and the foundation, uh, let's see, and the foundations of the, of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, an emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, a topaz. The tenth, a chrysophrasis the eleventh, a jacinth, and the twelfth, an amethyst. So you have twelve stones. And when you go back to the Old Testament, look in the book of Exodus chapter 28, if you will. Exodus chapter 28. <clears throat> You'll find there are various things made for the high priest. <clears throat> Let's read verse 6, first of all. Begin with verse 6. Exodus 28, verse 6, And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and of purple and of scarlet, and fine twine linen, with cunning work. 
It shall have two shoulder pieces. Now you have on the priest's garment two shoulder pieces thereof, joined at the two edges thereof, and so it shall be joined together. And the curious girdle of the ephod, which is upon uh, it, shall be of the same, according to the work thereof, even of gold, of blue, of purple, and scarlet, and fine twine linen. Now verse 9 and 10. It says, And thou shalt take two onyx stones, and grave... And grave on them the names of the children of Israel. These stones were on the shoulders. Six of their names on one stone, and six of uh, the other names uh, of the rest on the other stone, according to, to birth. To their birth. That's the birth of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Now, verse 12 says, And thou shalt put the two stones upon the shoulders of the ephod. It was a certain piece of the garment of the high priest. Thou shalt put the two stones, these two stones, each one had six names engraven upon it, according to the birth of the tribes of the children of Israel. And it says, Thou shalt put the two stones upon the shoulders of the ephod, for stones of memorial unto the children of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names, bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial. So you have all of the Tribes represented, all the families of the children of Israel, of the twelve tribes, represented in these two stones upon the shoulders of the priest. And this indicated that, that God would bear them with His strength continually. Their names were written there on these stones. All the names, all of... So it's symbolical of, well, let's put it in the spiritual application. Jesus is our great high priest, and now he bears all of our names upon his shoulder. We rest upon the shoulders of Christ for strength. We draw all of our strength from his strength. And we are all represented there. Just as all of Israel was represented there in the Old Testament, so are all of God's people represented as Christ is our great high priest in the heavenlies. He's bearing our names constantly upon His shoulders. So if you and I are weak and we need strength, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Remember the lost sheep in Luke 15? He says he goes and finds that one sheep which is lost and he lays it upon his shoulder and he carries it home. Well now, it didn't make any difference how much that little old sheep would struggle or squirm around or try to get off or anything. The strength of the Lord is what brought it safely and secure home. And that's our security too. When Jesus goes out and He finds that lost sheep, He puts it on His shoulder and, and there's nothing can separate that sheep from the shoulder of the Lord because He's strong. He has all power. And He brings us home safely. And He says He seeks that lost sheep until He finds it. And when He finds it, He bringeth it home. I like that. You read Luke, Luke 15. He bringeth it home. And then the neighbors begin to rejoice with him because he's found that sheep that was lost. He says he'll leave the 99 in the fold and go after that one which is lost. It was said of one, if there was ever a blessing in being lost, it's the assurance to know that Jesus is looking for you. And that he, when he finds you, he's going to bring you home safely. If there's any consolation at all, and being a lost sheep, 
Just make sure the Lord is looking for you. And when He gets you, He's going to put you on His shoulder and bring you home safely. I like that assurance, don't you? And I like that strength and power. But we're not through with that. Let's go on and look. Uh, Verse 15. Pick up with verse 15. And thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment. You have Exodus 28, verse 15. We're in Exodus now. Thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work after the work of the ephod, and thou shalt make it of gold, of blue, purple, and scarlet, and of fine twine linen shalt thou make it. Four square it shall be being doubled. A span shall be the length thereof. And a span shall be the breadth thereof. And thou shalt set in it settings of stones. Now on the breastplate, on the shoulders there were six names on each stone. But on the breastplate, uh, it says... Thou shalt set in it settings of stones, even four rows of stones. Four rows. Four rows of three. What's three times four? We used to learn that in school. I don't know if you learn it anymore. I think you punch a calculator button. I wonder how many young people nowadays can uh, do their multiplication tables up to 144 or 12 times 12. People know what 12 times 12 is? Know what 12 times 11 is? Know what uh, 9 times 12 is? See, you used to learn those things. But now we punch so many buttons, we just say, I got amused at this uh, new fellow that has the uh, coffee house up here where the donut shop was. I visited with him some yesterday. And he was talking about having ordered something and he called them up long distance, says it was supposed to be here. I need it real bad. And she says, I, I can't get it up on the computer. He says, do you have a pencil and a piece of paper where you could write it down and send me that particular thing? I need that real bad. She says, we just can't do that. There's no way we can do that. And this is the world we live in today. You go in the store and you buy something. And if they're machine is broke down and you have 15 cents coming out of a dollar and a half and come to a dollar 35 there's no way you can get that 15 cents and there's no way they can get it correct but anyway they're good as far as they work so when it's working you know say garbage in garbage out that's about what it amounts to but we're talking about here four rows of three four times three is twelve now look, let me read this for you. Thou shalt set it in settings of stones, even four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius. We're coming with the same stones that we find in the sardius, a topaz, a carbuncle. This shall be, and some of these names can be traced to coincide with one another. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row shall be a ligure, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth row, a barrel, and an onyx, and a jasper. Now, his glory is in this brilliant stone. And the sardius stone represents his redemptive work, the blood red stone, the sardius stone. Verse 21 says, And the stone shall be with the names, now listen, the stone shall be with the names of the children of Israel. Twelve, according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, every one with his name shall be according to the twelve tribes. 
Now, there's a lot of detail I will not read, but I do want to read verse 29 in closing this uh, book of Exodus. It says, And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart. This breastplate goes on the heart. When he goeth into the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. So he bears the names. Now look, this priest Aaron would bear the names upon his shoulders. He would bear the names upon his heart. Six on each stone on the onyx stone on the shoulders. Twelve names on the individual stones upon the breastplate. And it says, He shall bear the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goeth into the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Bearing the names of all the children of Israel upon his heart represents Christ too. Bearing the names of all of his people. This was all of God's people in the Old Testament. His chosen people, the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, all represented there. Well, when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God and is seated on the right hand of God in heaven, He symbolically there bears, not, bears us not only on His shoulders, but upon His heart. Upon it, what's heart mean? It means that no one could ever love all of His people as Jesus loves all of us. It means that He has perfect love, divine love. And you and I are fickle with our love. We don't like to admit it, but we are. That's why Peter, you know, when after the resurrection, and he had denied the Lord three times, and Jesus said, Peter, Simon Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Peter says, you know that I love you. Uh, Jesus used the word, divine word. Do you love me with this divine love? Do you really love me? Peter says, I'm fond of you. He used another word. Yeah, thou knowest that I love thee. Thou, you know, Lord, that I'm fond of you. And he said that, and you have to go to the Greek to find this out. Uh, the difference between the two words for love there. And then he goes on. Next time, uh, Jesus asked Peter again. He says, Simon, Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And Peter says, you know that I'm fond of you. And the third time, since Peter could not arise to that divine word for love, the third time when Jesus asked him, he says, do you do, are you really fond of me? Jesus condescends to use the, the smaller word or lesser word for love. And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know, you would be a little reluctant, a little uh, hesitant to say I love you when he had already said I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And... He failed in denial of the Lord three times. You would be a little reluctant, wouldn't you? So, he found out that his self-boasting and self-confidence didn't pay off. He was completely trusting in the Lord now. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And you know I'm fond of you. But he never could arise to that higher word for love. Divine love. So, you and I, sometimes we become a little too confident. And we think that we would never deny the Lord or we would never be unfaithful. We'd never fail. Jesus knows our heart. He knows we don't want to. But He knows our weakness too. He knows we, can, uh, we could do that. So let's get back to Revelation 21 now and we'll continue with our lesson here uh, hurriedly. Revelation 21, let's read again verse 19 and 20. It says, And 
And, and the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, and the twelfth an amethyst. Now verse 21 says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. They're pictured as pearls. The gates of these of this city are pictured as pearls. And it says, Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. Quite a description of glory, isn't it? Think of the twelve gates being twelve pearls. It's as if in the Gospels where you know... A man, if he finds one pearl of great price, that's the Lord, he'll sell all that he has and he'll go for that one pearl. Sell everything he has to buy that one pearl. That means that we can risk all and put all aside if we find that one perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can put away all of your works and all of your uh, trying to do your own righteousness, all of trying to seek after heaven in other ways. You find that one pearl of great price and you have it all. Remember that little story we read of the painting of the sun one time and all these beautiful pictures from the various uh, uh, um, artists that were so unique and so costly. And this man had painted a picture of his son. And they had the auction. And the one that bought that painting, he bought that one. No one wanted to bid on it. And when they bought that painting, the auctioneer says, the auction is over. Oh, come on, sell us the rest of those paintings. He says, no. He said, it was the Father's will that whoever bought the son received it all. And that's the way of you and I. When we buy Jesus, when we receive Christ, we receive it all. There's nothing withheld. And so here we have the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and every uh, several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. This is to describe all the glory of that city. Pure gold. In verse 22, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. There was no temple. Have you ever thought about when people move to a city or when people move from one place to another, they want to check out and see if there's a church there and find out if there's a church that they can attend, that they feel comfortable in, that they can join and be a part of. But here, in that heavenly city, I saw no temple therein. Why? For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. You see, we can do away with the earthly church houses and places of worship because we'll be in a place where He Himself will be the temple of it. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Verse 23 says, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. Not even the heavenly lights. You know, there was artificial light in the Old Testament in the tabernacle and in the temple. But here it says, For the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. 
In the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, there was the holy place. And it was two-thirds as large as the most holy place. You might say divide the tabernacle into three parts. Two-thirds here and one-third behind the veil. And that behind the veil was a perfect cube that we were talking about, where God's presence was. Behind the veil in the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant, overshadowed with cherubims, overshadowing the mercy seat, built of wood, acacia wood, and overlaid with pure gold. And the lid was made of one piece of golden, uh, of beaten work, of one gold. It was not separated in parts, the lid of this Ark or chest. And inside that temple, or inside that tabernacle, in the behind the veil, they said there was a what they called a Shekinah glory. There was such a glory that the priests would go in there with just standing in awe in the presence of God. So here you have this Heavenly temple has no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. But even before you got behind this first, this veil, in the tabernacle again, I'm using it to illustrate, there was the seven golden, seven branched golden candlestick over on this side, and the, and the table of showbread over on this side, inside the tabernacle before you go behind that veil that I've been describing. And on this side, you had 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. You had the seven-branched candlestick, seven the number of perfection. But it was artificial light, nevertheless, to lighten this part out here. And this place in heaven has no need of artificial light. You and I turn the lights on and off. We have light. And it's all man-made, in a sense. But we have God's light in there will be such a light that we'll have no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it. Even the natural light from the heavenlies will not need to lighten this city because it will be God that will lighten it up. I wonder what it would be like to stand in the presence of God's light. It... A pretty good illustration. Most of you have seen the Ten Commandments, the original Ten Commandments. And you remember when Moses went up on the mount and God was riding the tables of stone and even the burning bush and He would hide His face from the glory of that light. And by the way, I wish more movies were made at least somewhat scriptural. We can say that that was about as close as you could get, or pretty close. But then we find that uh, as far as as God's light is concerned, this city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. What would it be like to stand in the presence of God's holy light? There's another incident where the apostles, three of them, came very close. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, went up into a high mountain apart to pray, and he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. One gospel says, so white that no fuller of earth could have whitened it. 
another gospel says white and glistening or glistering. And Jesus was transfigured before them. And Peter, James, and John fell down upon the ground on their faces because of that light of Christ. Christ's glory coming from within. He was transfigured before them. And His face did shine as the sun. And His raiment was white as the light. And they were smitten to the ground. I believe they were almost smitten with blindness. Paul had much the same experience. Remember what Paul did? Saul of Tarsus, he came persecuting the church. And at midday there was a, a light brighter than the noonday sun. You know, the noonday sun's pretty bright, isn't it? Brighter than that. And Paul was actually blinded by that light. And he fell upon his face to the ground. In fact, it was several days before he got his sight back. And that was through a miracle that the sight was given him back. So what would it be to be in the present? We'd have to be prepared for it and we'd have to be fitted to it, wouldn't we? We'd have to be made uh, fit to be in the presence of such light. But what a glorious thing it would be to have no temple. We'd have to have no earthly church house. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb were the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof, living in the presence of God in a spiritual sense, so that you were in this uh, condition of worship, because you go to the, house, the temple for worship, throughout eternity, and in the light of God. Now then, here's something, the next three verses, and we'll close with these. Quite difficult to understand that there are nations. And it says, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. Now, I don't want this, this to disturb you, but no manuscript, listen, the words of them which are saved are not found in any manuscript. So if you have a NIV or King James Version or whatever, and it's given here in the King James Version as well as other versions have which are saved. But those words are not found in any manuscript. Not that it means uh, that there were not nations that were still in existence, but it's talking about the difference between being saved and uh, leaving the impression that they were saved people of these nations. It's talking about uh, he's speaking of those nations really. This could mean that those nations were living round about the new Jerusalem, but they were not included among the redeemed. So, the, even in the future, there's going to be God's people ruling and reigning and in glory throughout eternity. But it says in verse 24, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. By the word way the word there into means unto it. They do not come into it because they shall not enter it. Only those whose names, we have it here in the context, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life shall uh, be in, in that city. Now let's read verse 25 through 27 and you'll see. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, 
Neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they who, who shall enter, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. The only inhabitants and the only ones that will enjoy that heavenly glory will be those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And what does that mean? That means only the saved by the blood of the Lamb. Only the redeemed by Christ's blood. Whether of the Old or New Testament, whatever age and time, and even during the tribulation period when those believe, the only ones that will be there are God's own chosen, redeemed people. And they will be in His presence throughout eternity. You know, you and I have no idea. We, we really touch on these verses. But we have really no complete picture of what eternity shall be. Now, the fellow that professes that he does, I think he's just professing his ignorance, really. I really believe that. Because God has given us things that... He's given us a hint. He's given us some revelation. This is His revelation. And what He's revealed, we, we have. But what He has not said, we do not have. A good verse of Scripture for you to remember is Deuteronomy 29.29. You know what that says? I'll give it to you time and again. Deuteronomy 29.29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So don't worry about prying into them. Secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things which are revealed unto us and to our children. And there's more to it there. There's more passages of Scripture there. But that's the, the basis of it and the gist of it. So remember that what God has in His secret, we don't need to meddle with or worry about prying into. But what He's revealed, let's learn and study it. And I'm thankful for as much as He's revealed because I know from what we've studied even in this lesson tonight that all of that will be a glorious, glorious presence throughout eternity. We've already read in the earlier part, I believe it was verse 4 of the 21st chapter, where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. 